the very first time. When was the first time you ever drank out of a cup while running? My first ever marathon. Yeah, me too. Or actually, my, mine was my first ever half marathon. And they handed me a cup, and I run off, and I spill half of it all the way down me, and then I try to drink it, and I and I started coughing, I started choking. Yeah, I practically waterboarded myself <laughs> my first marathon. <laughs> right on. And it's- back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. And I'm Patrick Ollinger. We are endurance athletes and coaches here in the Atlanta area. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for interacting with us on Facebook. Thanks for your ratings and your reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate all of those things. Um, I'll remind you that uh, we have started doing research and news on one week, and then we'll do sort of a topic that we want to talk about on the following week. And, and this is Topic Week. We need to come up with a better name for Topic Week. Yeah. That's, I, all right, we'll so, put so, that on the list. Exactly. Well, let, let, actually, <laughs> let's put it out to all of our listeners. If you can come up with something better that we can call these weeks, because I was like News and Research Week. That sounds okay, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, like, the, the other weeks, yeah, I'm not sure what we should call those. But anyway, uh, this is Topic Week. Um, and so... Patrick, why don't you tell us about the topic? Sure. So today's topic is going to be race planning, and this is planning for marathons, Ironman, and half Ironman. Uh, you know, one thing, if you're new to some of these big events, you may know that you, you may spend a lot of your time thinking about what's my pace going to be like, what's it going to feel like during the race, but there's a lot of planning that goes into it. It's amazing how, you know, a marathon, for example, all you're doing is putting one foot in front of the other for a very long time. <laughs> but there is a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, you and I coach a lot of racers. We have a lot of experience of running races from 5K to 26.2. We, you've to 140.6. Yeah, I was saying, you've done even more than that. Yeah. Um, and we, we just want to talk today about how there needs to be a plan going into that big race. There's a lot of nerves that kind of can come up on race day, even if you're experienced, but if you go in with the plan, that can really help you kind of stay the course and, and hit your goals as needed. Yeah, I think that, that, so I'll say a couple of quick things here at the outset. Um, Patrick, since he came on to the podcast, and I, I shouldn't talk about him as he can't hear me because he's literally sitting three feet from me, but... Yeah, be careful, but, buddy. <laughs> but, but, but Patrick, when he came on the podcast, one of the things that he, he really brought to it and one of the things he wanted to bring to it was was that we actually would take time to articulate things that we normally don't articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that we always sort of talk to our athletes um, on the side or via training peaks or something else like that about how important it is to, to think about your plan for the race and think about all the various things that are going to happen for the race. Um, but, but we've never articulated that in the podcast necessarily. Um, the other thing I would, I would – and so we're going to do that today. The other thing that I would mention here at the outset is that, that um, several weeks ago, uh, Patrick and I did a podcast in which we talked about the fundamental elements of, of distance training, of, of endurance training. And these are the things you need to have. You need to have lactate threshold and efficiency and, and all those different things. And we talked about the ways that you would train all that stuff and the importance of training all of those things. When he and I were discussing that particular podcast, um, that topic, I said one of the things that we also need to include was what I called race-specific factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and Patrick actually kind of vetoed that and said, why don't we actually spend some time talking about that in, in its own podcast on some other time? Um, and, and we agreed to do that, and the result is, is this podcast here today. And so um, I think one of the themes that's arisen over the course of the past couple of weeks, um, you know, our, our um, interview with Josh Glass um, and then talking about Roger Bannister last week, um, was the importance of having a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's sort of one big thing that, that you take away from this podcast today, it's that you should have a plan. You should be intentional about what race day is going to look like. Um, like Patrick just said, it's more than just going and putting one foot in front of the other for a really long time. Um, and so what we're going to talk about today, I guess, I guess is the, the ingredients of that plan, the different things you need to consider. Right, and one thing I always say is, or to steal, I think from Vince Lombardi, fatigue makes wimps out of all of us, <laughs> and fatigue is going to be a part of race day. So it's best to go into that big race with a plan. Oh, it's incredible! He's so totally that, right. I've never heard that before. I love that. Keep going. Um, 
So, yeah, it's a more gentle version of the Mike Tyson, we all have a plan, or... We all have a plan, plan to get punched, punched in the, the mouth, face. yeah. yeah. Um, you will not get punched in the face unless something goes terribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, but we all need that plan to help make better decisions so that, you know, you know when the nerves are kind of high, when the anxiety's high, you can kind of stick to that plan and yeah. have comfort and confidence yeah. in what you're doing. And, and, and when the effort is high, I mean, mm-hmm. I try and... Numeracy leaves me. Yes. When, whenever I'm under physical strain. Um, when I was a crew member for my, my wife's Race Across America team, I could not put numbers together as, right. as fatigue began to set in on day four and day five of that of that event. Um, but like even just yesterday, um, or the day before yesterday, I was I was in a gym and I was on a stair stepper. Have you ever used a stair stepper before? I have not. I saw the episode of Seinfeld where George <laughs> got his leg caught in the st- stair stepper and almost got it chopped off so. fortunately i did not see that episode because i used one for the first time this week and i probably would have been scared off but um <laughs> but but you're sitting there looking at your number of steps mm-hmm. and the number of floors and you're thinking about how long you want the workout to be and i found myself trying to calculate exactly how many steps am i going to do how many floors am i going to do in this amount of time that i have to actually do that i was woefully incapable of, of doing that math um in the in the midst of the effort Right. right? Um, and so you need a plan. You need a plan that you can stick to, and you stick to the plan unless, of course, the plan starts to fall apart. We'll talk about that at the very end. All right, keep going. Yeah, and so when we talk about a plan and we talk about kind of race planning, you know, it kind of fits into a couple different buckets or a couple different elements, which we'll talk about today, like logistics, uh, pace strategy, gear prep, nutrition and hydration mm-hmm. so we'll, we'll start off with the first one which is logistics mm-hmm. and this is kind of the, the pre-race stuff so to speak it's like logistics of the start yes and of just getting to the race mm-hmm. um that's step one yeah. um so you need to start by making sure you're prepared for all the little details that are involved with a big race um you know we've talked you know and you kind of mentioned this before we've talked on this podcast before about using training to prepare for what the race requires. Mm-hmm. You know, physiologically, that means long runs to physically prepare yourself for the distance of the marathon. But this also means logistically preparing yourself to run your best and to have a plan together to get to the starting line mm-hmm. with a limited number of stressors mm-hmm. or uncertainty and with greater awareness about logistical constraints. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, you know, different races you know, present different um, logistical concerns. We have a lot of athletes running the Boston Marathon and the Publix Half Marathon over the next month or so. And the Publix Half Marathon, of course, is here in Atlanta. This starts right in Centennial Olympic Park. And for Publix, you can almost drive up to Centennial Olympic Park from Highway 85, park close, and be at the starting line in no time. The gear drop is right there, you know, a couple hundred yards maybe from the starting line. There's almost no line for gear check. It's a very stress-free starting line. Mm -hmm. Boston, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. that requires a huge plan um, because, you know, the start is out in Hopkinton, Mm -hmm. but to get to Hopkinton, you have to be in Boston Commons early enough to catch the buses out to Hopkinton. It's a point-to-point course. It's a point-to-point course, Mm -hmm. and you have to figure out, okay, if I'm in this corral, I have to be at the starting line maybe an hour before the start of the race. Okay, to do that, I have to make sure I catch these buses, you know, and in order to catch these buses, I have to catch the train down to the buses at this time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more involved logistically. There, There is no race that is more logistically involved in getting to the start line than the New York City Marathon. Uh, yes. The New York City Marathon starts at 10 o'clock in the morning. The first wave starts at 10 o'clock in the morning because that's how long it takes 50,000 people get down to Staten Island to start. They could not start it at 7 o'clock in the morning. Right. Um, because you can't get all the people there. But your day still begins super early in the morning. So you still have to kind of think about, okay, you're going to set your alarm, you're going to get up, you're going to have breakfast, all that sort of thing at 5.30 in the morning, just like you do if it was a 7 o'clock start at the Publix Marathon. Um, but then you have to say, all right, let me get from where I'm staying in the Upper West Side near the finish line. Let me get on a subway or get on a taxi and go down to Staten Island. And then let me get on the ferry and go that down to Staten Island. Let me wait on the line to get in the bus and then get on the bus and ride that over to the starting line. Then let me walk through the entire big, huge starting area and get to my starting corral. And, um, and, and, it's, and it's November in Dece- it's November in New York City, so you don't want to mess that up or else you're going to be standing outside in the cold for, for a lot of time prior to the start of your race. And another thing is you, you, you think about things like, I need to carry money. Yeah. To have to get the transportation from, yeah. the, from the taxi, from the train yeah. ride, etc. Yeah. I can tell you my first ever Boston, 
I forgot to pack, or somehow my pre-race clothes or my starting line clothes did not make it to my make it to Boston. Mm. So all I had was like the singlet, <laughs> the shoes, the shorts. Well, ended up being like forty degrees at the starting line. <laughs> so I bought the morning of the race. There was a vendor out there that was selling. Uh, like sweatshirts and sweatpants. So I literally bought a giant sweatshirt. And for those of you who don't know, at Boston, the gear check is at the finish line. Mm-hmm. So you, if you check gear, you leave it behind at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and then you don't see it until the end of the race. And, and then you go to the starting line. And then, yeah, and then you go to the starting line, yeah. and you wait at the starting line for a couple hours before mm-hmm. starting the race. So when it's cold, you don't want to be out there in a singleted shorts. Right. So anyway, so I found this st- Boston street vendor who was selling sweatshirts and sweatpants. So I literally was at the starting line of the Boston Marathon wearing a shirt that said, don't mess with the Irish, and was a picture (laughs) of a giant leprechaun in a four-leaf clover. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is fantastic. Um, and, you, and you were tempted to wear that for the remainder of the race, I imagine. I have to say, it was tough. That was a, a dollar well spent. <laughs> but these are things you have to think about when you think, when you are planning for your race because yes that mistake was kind of funny and I could kind of cover up for it but there are other things like you would not want to forget a gel or a goo or something like that yeah yeah and and so I think that the you know along those lines about not forgetting things and about kind of the whole process two things I'll say about that as well one um all of these things so your singlet your number um, yes. which would be so easy to forget. Your timing chip, things like that. You lay out I've done all, that one too, by the way. Yeah, we've all done that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, like all of those things. And they have safeguards in place for that stuff, but you don't want to use it. Um, and so so if you do forget one of those things, don't freak out. But but at the same time, just you're just better off not forgetting it, mm-hmm. right? All of those things you need to plan ahead of. You need to plan 24 hours ahead, 48 hours ahead, all of those sorts of things. You need to be laying those clothing out. You need to be thinking about you know, what alarms you're going to set, what time you're going to be waking up, um, when you're going to be eating and where. It took me three and a half hours to get from the Upper West Side to the starting line in in um, New York City, in the mm-hmm. New York City Marathon. There was no way I was going to eat breakfast, then begin the trek down there and fast for three and a half hours, and then run the first two miles of the race and then take a gel. That would be a bad fueling strategy. So I, yes. I, I needed to account for those, those sorts of things. What's more... You also need to, to account in your plan for the way that you're going to feel mentally as these things are happening. Um, Great point. So, so when you're in Boston and you're on the bus and it's taken a while, because it does take a while to drive 26.2 miles, um, or when you're, you're in New York and you're in a line and you're in traffic, because there's a lot of people that are trying to get down into this one small space in Staten Island, um, you know, keep an eye. It's okay. Um, by the time it was about, so, so I started at 10 o'clock in New York city at about, um, at about 10 of eight. So still two hours till my race. I was sitting on the bus and the bus is in traffic and I couldn't be in a better spot. Really? It's warm. I can stand up if I want to. I brought food with me so I could keep on eating if I wanted to, if I needed to, something like that. Um, I could not have been in a better place. I was a lot better off being there than I was in my cold corral. Right. You know, um, but because I had already been in the commuting to the race start process for more than two hours at that point, I started getting really nervous. Right. Um, and, and I had no reason to be nervous. Um, and eventually I was kind of like, George, your race doesn't start for two hours. You're good. And I was good. I ended up getting there um, with about 80 or 90 minutes to spare, which was like the perfect amount of time. Um, I got there and two of the guys that I coach... Eddie Ferguson and Blake Snyder were all snuggled up together, spooning one another because they had already been there for an hour and they were freezing. Um, and I, I happened to be wearing an extra shirt that would belong to Blake, and I pulled it off and said, "Here, take this." He's like, "Oh my god, thank you so much!" You know, uh, because they were freezing. Um, yeah, and because they had been there for for an hour longer than I had. Yeah. Um, so so I was very fortunate in that regard, and and, and it was also a result of good plan. And and I think you, you brought up a good point. It's not just the logistics itself, mm-hmm. right? It's the anxiety you feel. Yeah. Heading. To the starting line. Yeah. The, the race itself is going to be stressful enough. Yeah. You don't want to kind of wear out your mental capacity to some degree. Yeah. In, you know, kind of the nervousness of getting yeah. to the race. Yeah. Or, or screw up your pre-race nutrition or, or, or anything else like that. You don't want to screw those things up or, and, and waste all of that energy just because you haven't 
prepared yourself mentally for, for what you're going to face as you make your way to the starting line. Um, and if you're somebody that if you're, if you're like, oh my God, I, I, I can't help but stress out about that stuff, don't make New York City your target marathon. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, run it by all means. Everybody should run it. It's brilliant. Um, but but make something like Publix your target marathon. You know, make make something that that has easier logistics. Make Chicago your target marathon, right? Because the logistics at Chicago were stunningly easy. Um, you know, um, like like starts and finishes in the same place, big old corral area. I remember I, I said to you, hey, we should meet at six a.m. for this eight a.m. start or something like that, and you're like, ah, yeah, that's a little bit early because you had run it before and you knew. Um, and I was coming off of New York, um, so yeah, it's it's much easier in terms of logistics. So. And that's actually another good point. So you and I met at the start of Chicago. Uh, if you are meeting someone, have a clear plan for where you want to meet mm-hmm. and try to make it a spot that is easy to meet at. <laughs> um, you know, don't say the tree that looks like Forrest Gump or whatever. Um, the tree looks like Forrest Gump? Yeah, I, I have no idea. But and the reason is I actually have had heard uh, of kind of horror stories where someone said, yeah, we'll meet you know, in Boston... By the porta potties, which if, right. you've ever, if you've ever been in the athletes' village in right. Boston, saying you'll meet by the porta potties is like saying I'll meet in the stadium during the tournament. I mean, it's right. like it's a huge area. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, if you are meeting somebody, I would almost recommend meeting at the hotel if you can. Mm-hmm. That way, you can kind of make it there together. Mm-hmm. And in case you do end up stuck in traffic, mm-hmm. that person can kind of help. You, you can yeah. kind of help know. Okay. They're with me. They can kind of help calm you down. That yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Don't meet somebody that's not going to calm you down. <laughs> right, right. Um, um, other things about kind of start logistics and things about that. You know, set multiple alarms. That goes without saying. Um, you know, things like that. Um, I would one more. I would add. Um, I think sometimes because a lot of times if you're, if you're going to a big event, mm-hmm. um, you might be getting up before your family, um, and so that means you might be preparing in the dark. Right. Um, and so, so if you have your family with you, um, keep that in mind as well. Um, that that you can't just stand up and turn on your mood music and and you know turn on all the lights and get dressed and have your breakfast and all that sort of thing. Um, your sons might be asleep with your wife, and you might need them to stay asleep, or else they're gonna have a really tough day. Um, and and that means getting dressed in the dark or something like that. So so that's something else to figure out as well. Yeah, and then similarly, like the day before. Know where the packet pickup is. Have a mm. bit of a plan for how long you want to be there. Mm. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so we've talked a little bit about nutrition. Let's talk a little bit more about nutrition. All right. Um, I know that you have some strong feelings about nutrition. So so let's, let's talk about weekday and then, of course, in-race nutrition as well. Go ahead. Sure. So I'll just say, that for, so for the week leading up to the race... Um, one of the biggest questions I have are is about carbo loading. Mm-hmm. People ask, should I carbo load? Mm-hmm. And I would say the biggest piece of advice I can give, or the generic advice I can give, is mm-hmm. don't do anything different than what you usually do. Right. If you want to do something different, drink an extra glass of water per day, mm-hmm. and maybe have an extra bowl of pasta on like Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the big rule of thumb is it, don't do anything you don't usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe add another glass of water, maybe another bowl of pasta. Mm-hmm. And then if you can, you know, if you drink Coca-Cola every day at lunch, maybe cut out that Coca-Cola for, mm-hmm. for lunch leading up to. But for the most part, you don't want to then try to reinvent the wheel because your body has been training on a certain diet. And so you don't want to come race day or race week, try to all of a sudden flood it with new stimulus or new uh, food. New challenges, yeah. I mean, the the... You know, the carbo loading, I totally agree with you. So, and everybody's heard this before. If you haven't heard this before, you haven't been listening. Nothing new on race day, yeah. right? Um, but that goes for race week as well. Nothing new on race week, nutritionally speaking, right? People all say, oh, is there a special food that I should have this week? No, there's not. You should eat what you always eat. Right. Um, assuming assuming that in preparation for this event, you've been eating well, right? Right. Um, you know, harken back to the, the stuff we talked about last week, the research around diet and depression and all that sort of thing. But um, but but assuming that you normally eat well, don't eat anything new. Um, it's fine. Now, if you want to do a carb depletion and carb load, fantastic. 
don't do it for the first time the week before your big target race. Right. You know, do, do it do it for your your the half marathon that you're doing. You know, six to eight weeks out, uh, four to eight weeks out. You know, do it do it prior to that one. See how it goes. Um, I tried to do a, a carb depletion and carb carb loading one time, and it just didn't agree with me, and so I ended up not doing it um, for for my actual race. And I'm, I'm glad that I didn't. Um, my wife prior to big events, and you know, she's done Ironmans and double Ironmans. Um, she she would do a carb depletion and carb load, and it worked for her, and she liked it. Um, it made her feel light and ready, mm-hmm. um, and that's great. It just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that out in practice. I found that out weeks before the race, not you know during the the, the week for the race itself. Um, and then of course you have the 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 morning of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were just talking about New York and everything. We were talking about how how the morning of the race, you're going to get up and you're going to have breakfast four hours before you start. Um, and so what are you going to do in that ensuing four hours? You're not going to fast for four hours and then start the race in, in, in a fasted state. So, so, so what are you going to do during that time? It's good to take at least one time between, um, between before, prior to your target race to, to time things the way that they're going to be timed. Right. Um, and so, so everything in practice testing various things in practice. That's always the one biggest thing I always advise to people who are going to be doing Ironmans is, is to test stuff in practice. Um, and so you you should do at least one long run at 10 o'clock in the morning if you're getting ready for New York City. Um, and, and you should get up for that one at 5.30 in the morning and, and have your breakfast in and then hang out. Walk around your house a little bit. Watch some TV uh, for the next few hours before actually going out for your long run. You know, simulate that in practice. You don't have to do that every week. It would be inconvenient to do that every week. It would be a little bit unrealistic to do that every week. But do it at least once and then reflect on it afterwards, write in your journal afterwards, and, and, and think about, okay, what are some things that I can take away from this uh, that I can then apply on race day? Um, yeah, and speaking of, I know one of my big learning curves was, so I'll kind of share mistakes I've made in the past. Coming from the 5K, 10K track world to marathoning, mm-hmm. my second ever marathon I didn't have any gels. I just was not aware about how, uh, you know, essential they were to completing the marathon and just completely bonked, mm-hmm. as, as one would imagine. Mm-hmm. So then the third marathon, I'm thinking, okay, I've done some research and I know these gels are a lot, <laughs> they're worth it, right? This is not an advertising gimmick. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of that training cycle testing out different goose. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, even different flavors of the same brand, mm-hmm. react. my stomach reacted differently. And I, yeah. and I would almost have to struggle to keep them down. And it's it's good to go through those kind of trial and errors in long runs, maybe tempo runs, leading, even easier or medium long runs leading up to the race and months prior to the race mm-hmm. rather than introducing a new stimulus on race day. Yeah. Um, and it's good to have a plan for, all right, you know, what do I want to eat the day before the race and the morning of the race so like i know for me the morning of i always start with you know bagel water coffee and a gel you know because that kind of is what i do usually during long runs you have a as gel well. for breakfast i do oh man you go it's it's uh it's interesting and i think it's <laughs> i honestly think it's more mental than anything else to be okay. honest with you because i only have the gels during long tough runs okay and during races yeah so i honestly think it's because we put on like running shoes yeah for any workout. Yeah, that's a good point. So that, you know, it's not like a warrior putting on arm, armor, but the gel is kind of a, I just know whenever I have it, yeah. mentally it's almost like I know it's Same go time. time. Yeah. And to that point, that is something you want to include when planning out logistics, nutrition, etc. If you have superstitions, if you have, mm-hmm. you know, things that you like to do mentally that you know, hey, you know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal. Maybe I don't have to have a raisin bagel, mm-hmm. but I like to because it's, you know, something that helps me plan that out. Yeah. Know that, you know, buy the raisin bagels at the grocery store. You know, if you're running in Boston the week before the race, so you have it in your hotel room yeah. in the morning of the race. I mean, you, you say superstition, superstitions are born out of practice. Right. You know? And so, so if it works for you and so you become superstitious about it, hey, that's because it worked. Keep on doing it. You know, within reason, of course, if you happen to like give blood the day before a race, and <laughs> the day, like, like don't make that a general practice because I can tell you that's going to ultimately affect your races poorly. Um, but, but, you know, I, I knew a guy in high school who did that as a matter of fact. So anyway, um, but, uh, but, but yeah, um, you know, I, I appreciate what you say about the gels, um, particularly during races as well, that, that. Um, you know, I made this mistake in Kona in 2014. 
Uh-huh. Um, and I had a good race in Kona in 2014, but I could have had a better race in Kona in 2014. Um, I was out on the run, and the clothing that I was wearing, and I had tested the clothing in practice, um, but the clothing that I was wearing, it didn't have really good pockets for gels. And, you know, and I've said on this podcast before, and I said in my race report there, you need a lot of gels on the Ironman run. I would take 12 gels on the Ironman run, on the on the 26.2-mile run. Good heavens. Yeah, and so... Um, you know, that like doubles your body weight. So just about. Um, and so, so because I was taking so many gels, I, I used to use power bar gels, which are very thin. Uh-huh. And so that was a big part of it. Um, and that was one of the, one of the, one of the reasons why I opted for power bar gels because they, they were thinner and they felt lighter. And when you're taking that many of them, a little bit thinner and lighter is good, you know? Um, but I couldn't carry them with me on my clothing. And I was like, oh, it's all good. I, I'm an experienced triathlete. I, I, I've done four Ironmans at this point. I'm a coma qualifier. I can, I can get the stuff off the course. And I, I look back on that and I'm like, wow, that was dumb. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe I was that flippant about such an important aspect of the thing. Um, and so what ended up happening um, was that not having the gels in my pocket, and this leads to, a, to something else I'm going to mention in a second here, not having the gels in my pocket, meaning I had to get them from the stations, meant that I wouldn't be able to start eating the gel until I got it to the station. So I had to stop at the station tell the volunteer what I wanted, they would hand me a gel, I would take it, I would eat it, then chase it with some water, and then would go, right? Whereas if I had it in my pocket, I would be coming up at the station, 50 feet out, I would pull it out, I would take it, I would get up, I would grab the water, I'd drink it, and I'd go. There was a guy that I was running with for the first half of the race, uh, the running part in, in, um, in Kona, and at every aid station, he would get 50 feet in front of me. I was giving up 50 feet at every aid station. That's incredible. Um, yeah, and and you know, six or seven aid stations. At this point, I'm starting to give up football fields. Right. You know, and and it's because I hadn't planned out my nutrition very well. In addition, um, because I wasn't using those thinner gels I was accustomed to, I was using the hammer gels, which were which were, I think no, it was goo that was the sponsor that year. Uh, I got a little bit more stomach upset, and I had to slow down a little bit more than I probably should have otherwise, and I didn't run quite as fast as I think I was probably capable of running. Um, overall, that probably cost me five or six minutes. Um, and that, and I realized, you know, a nine and a half hour race, five or six minutes, not a big deal. That's five or six places I would have finished higher in my age group. It is you if know? you ran a nine oh two. So so yeah, yeah, it would have been huge order on it. But it was the difference between being over nine thirty and under nine thirty. Mm-hmm. It was the difference between PRing and not PRing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but yeah, it it cost me plenty of time. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why we're having this podcast because after all of this training, after all of this hard work, you don't want something like not having enough goose. Mm-hmm to prevent you from meeting your goal, from meeting your Boston qualifier time, yeah. from breaking three hours in the marathon, or whatever it is that your goal is. Yeah. Um, I, I had been really diligent about that in the past. The first time that I had 12 gels on a run was, was in my second Ironman at Coeur d'Alene, and I had six caffeinated gels in one pocket and six uncaffeinated gels in the other pocket, and I would alternate pockets. And like I said, my numeracy always goes like as I get really tired. And so like around mile 16 or 17 or whenever I was taking that gel, I was always like, which pocket am I on? I really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's the reason why I had separated out like that, you know, in order to be able to do that. Um, you know, I, I did the same thing in Ironman, Wisconsin, where I also had a good run. And then for some reason, I was like, well, no, I really want to wear this clothing. And, and I didn't I didn't adjust. Um, and I said, well, I'll just, I'll just get my nutrition on the course. And that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, now... I should also mention as well, and this is at my reference a second ago, the very first time, when was the first time you ever drank out of a cup while running? My first ever marathon. Yeah, me too. Or actually, my, mine was my first ever half marathon, and they handed me a cup, and I run off, and I spill half of it all the way down me, and then I try to drink it, and I, and I started coughing, I started choking. Yeah, I practically waterboarded myself <laughs> my first marathon. <laughs> right on. And I think most people do, because yeah. you, you see people who have done it before, and they do it so easily, and you're like, oh, that's how it's done. Um, and no, it's actually really hard. Um, in in New York, uh, and so I got to where in triathlons um, and Ironmans, I would stop mm-hmm. just for an instant, but I, but I would stop um, uh, and stop down it go. And so you're talking about like one second stop. We're not talking about like the 50 feet I was giving up when I had to get a gel and water mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, you're talking about you know six feet, um, but uh, I didn't want to do that in a marathon mm-hmm. because it's so much more intense and it's so much faster, right? Um, and so, so I try to fold the cup and all that sort of thing and I'm dumping water out down the front of me and, and, and yeah, that's actually difficult to do Yeah, to run and drink out of a cup at the same time. It's actually difficult to do. And that's why I would <laughs> say practice if you get a chance. Yeah, exactly. And that's my point is that um, you need to practice that. Yeah. And that's there's certainly something to think about. Another thing to think about is what do you want the ratio to be for like water to Gatorade? Mm-hmm. 
you know, I know like at Boston, for example, I believe they start with, it's a line of Gatorade, then a line of water. Mm-hmm. So I always take the first Gatorade I can, mm-hmm. try to check that as quickly as possible. That way I can grab the last water. Right. Kind of in, I almost have that like runway yeah. of, of volunteers. Another thing to think about too is, especially if you're running a race like Chicago Marathon, the first two to three aid stations, I mean, it's like running through a buffalo stampede to get mm-hmm. to those those oh, yeah. first two stations. Oh, yeah. So you may want to decide you, you, early you, you, on. You should see it in an Ironman bike. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll pass on that. <laughs> see, you know, I, I can't do an Ironman. Um, you know, so you may want to decide. First three miles, I'll, I'll pass on the, the water stations, mm-hmm. but then I need to start at four. Yeah. And then another thing I know I do and I talk to runners about constantly is, have a plan for when you're going to take your gels. Mm-hmm. Because if not, what will happen is, let's say the plan is to take every 40 minutes, mm-hmm. or your general plan, you'll take the first one at 40 minutes, and then you'll forget for an hour and a half. Yeah. And by that point, yeah. your body's not going to be able to absorb the energy right. or the sugars quick enough right. to kind of be able to use later in the race. Right. Um, right. So it's always good to have a plan for nutrition, mm-hmm. what you want it to be, you know how you want to attack the water stations, the, the Gatorade stations. I'm a big fan of take whatever they give you. Mm-hmm miles through in a marathon miles three through 15 or so because mm-hmm. i mean you're going to need it later in the race yeah no and 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 that touches on something else important about about nutrition plans is you always have to eat and drink early yes um you know the the, the maximum cycling is is eat before you're hungry drink before you're thirsty um and, and you shouldn't necessarily be eating um but if you think about like semi-solid stuff like gels um, you should be using those before you're on the verge of bonking mm-hmm. like, like the, the, those are not a band-aid that you put on once you've wounded yourself the, the, those are those are prophylactic right um, you know you do those before you need them um, and so so same thing with water obviously in liquids um, the general guideline by the way um, and this matters more I think for people who are doing long course triathlon than it does for for people who are doing marathons just because it's such a huge deal and you have to take in so many calories throughout the course of a, of a long course triathlon um, the general Guideline is about 250 to 300 calories an hour, um, and most, if not all, of that should be from carbohydrates. So if you've heard like, "Oh, you should eat bacon or drink olive oil," no, you shouldn't. Good heavens! Um, there, there are people that are ultra runners who do that, and it's, it's not, it's not scientifically sound. Um, and so, so the bulk, if not all of it, should be from carbohydrates. If you're taking gels, it's obviously all going to be from carbohydrates. Um, but you know, some people need something for, for the sake of mouthfeel. They need like a sandwich or something like that. And so, so there might be some things in there that aren't carbohydrates. But about 250 to 300 calories an hour. And this is important, only about 100 calories at a time. Only about mm-hmm. 100 calories every 15 minutes. Um, and the, the place where people screw this up the most is that they will take a gel and they'll chase it with Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And so if you take a gel and you chase it with Gatorade, that's about 130 calories. And that might not seem like that big a difference, but, but essentially that difference is between uh, your body being able to process it while still running or riding and your body not being able to process it. And, and if your body can't process what you're putting in it at the same time that you're running and riding, it's, it has to make a choice either between diverting the resources to your stomach which is going to make you fall apart on the run or on the ride, or diverting the, 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 the resources to your legs, which is going to make you puke. Yeah. Neither one of those are good scenarios. Right. Um, and so, so you have to make sure that you're taking it in small little bits. Um, and then a similar point is once it's depleted, as you said... Uh, it's gone. It's gone. Um, like, like I said, my marathon, I bonked at 22, I kind of, at mile 22, 23... Uh, if I wasn't walking, I was moving slow enough to be walking, mm-hmm. and I tried the Gatorades, the gels. You know, by that point, I'm, I'm trying to pound everything I can in my stomach, mm-hmm. but it's almost like drinking from a water hose. Your your body can't process it yet. Yeah. You know, in order to prevent that from happening, yeah. you need to take everything 40, 50 minutes beforehand. Yeah, be preventative in your nutrition. Plan, right, for sure. All right. So speaking of things you test and practice, let's talk about gear. Yes. All right. So um, there was a, a photo of me during the Chicago Marathon that kind of went around a little bit, and somebody somebody responded, "Hey, I like your uh, I like what you did there with the sunglasses matching the gloves, matching the the, the shorts." And I was like, "That was on purpose. <laughs> you got to look good." <laughs> um, and and it, it, but it, it was entirely on purpose. But those gloves had been worn. That jersey had been worn. Those sunglasses had been worn. Mm-hmm. Those shorts had been worn a lot. Uh, those socks have been worn. That specific pair of socks, not just that type of socks, but a specific pair of socks have been worn. And of course, those shoes have been worn mm-hmm. um, on multiple occasions to ensure that they were they were going to be right for me. 
Um, I tested them in long workouts. I tested them in, in um, long runs. I tested them um, in situations where I was dumping water on myself and, and seeing how the, the, those things would, would, would work out. You know, um, If you stand um, on Polani Hill um, in Kona and you're watching everybody finish, like almost every single person that's finished is squish, 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 because like, their shoes are so wet. Not because they're sweating, even though they are, but because they've been dumping so much water on themselves. Right. Um, and, and all that water has run down into their shoes, and so their shoes are sopping wet. Well, that's something you need to consider when you're thinking about, okay, what socks are you going to wear? Or are you going to wear socks? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've read that people say that you should, you should spray waterproofing on your shoes. Mm-hmm. in order to try and keep that out, even though that might compromise some of the breathability of your shoes. Dave Martin, who we talked about last week at a great uh, a great length, uh, used to say, be careful with sunscreen, which is like contrary to what everybody says. Right. Because, because when you dump water on yourself during, uh, during a run or during a race or during a ride, dumping water on yourself has the same cooling properties as sweating does. Um, that water evaporates off of you and it takes that heat with you or with it. Um, and so he said, but if you put a whole bunch of waterproof sunscreen on yourself, then you dump water on your shoulders, the water is going to beat up and roll off of you before it can actually evaporate. Right. Um, and so, and, and, and therefore it won't be actually, you know, having that cooling effect. Um, all of those things. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, not saying don't put on sunscreen. Obviously getting sunburned would be a terrible thing, particularly in a long course triathlon. I am saying test that stuff <laughs> you know make sure that you test those things multiple times in practice to ensure that they're going to perform the way that you envision them performing yeah and you know the the key theme here is you know eliminate uncertainty mm-hmm. right or eliminate stressors mm-hmm. or surprises mm-hmm. you know a big one for me is shoes right you want to run in the same shoes or the same model of shoes as you've been training in, mm-hmm. right? Because if you try a new pair of shoes, you may find that you blister in those shoes or that they don't fit your running stride. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with that said, you also don't want to run in shoes that have 400 miles on them yeah. already. So then if you run a marathon by the end, they're like running on flat tires. <laughs> um, so yeah, these are all things. And the key is you want to have a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Know what it feels like to run in the shorts, the mm-hmm. singlet, the sunglasses, the gloves. Mm-hmm. So you have an idea of what it's going to look and feel like. Another thing is to think about the clothing at the starting line. I mentioned my story in Boston when I didn't have proper clothing. <laughs> You'll want to think about, you know, how do I want to dress when I'm waiting to go to, into my corral? Mm-hmm. When will I want to, you know, drop everything off at gear check? Mm-hmm. And then potentially what do I want to have waiting for me at the finish line? Right. You know, when I'll probably be cooling off and then needing to kind of wrap up and make sure my body temperature doesn't drop too much. Right. But back to the kind of the, the race gear. Another key aspect is the Garmin. Mm-hmm. Now, as people who have listened to this or the, podcast... Or the, or the Suunto or the Timex or whatever whatever technology you're Right. Yeah. As people who listen... Or the Wahoo. To, oh, thank you. Um, they don't have, they don't, Wahoo doesn't have a wrist one yet, but they do have bike computers, element bike computers. Anyway, keep going. I'm glad you mentioned them. But, you know, we have a bit of a love-hate relationship on this podcast with GPS watches mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a plan for how you're going to use your watch. Mm-hmm. For example, in Chicago... The first three miles are pretty wonky. The GPS doesn't really yeah. catch up with you, or you know, it'll it'll th- throw in moments where you're running a nine minute mile or a ten minute mile, or right. significantly slower than you, you should. You literally, and then run it'll make up for building. it. Yeah. Right in Chicago, you literally run through a building in the first mile. Right. Um, you you run. Yeah, the road goes through a building, and you're running under a building. How do you expect your? your, your of course, your GPS is not going to work. <laughs> right. So you'll need to kind of know that going into it, so that you don't look at your watch at the three mile split and think. Holy smokes! I'm way behind my goal pace. Yeah. I gotta roll here and then blow yourself out before the race even starts. Right. You'll also want to think about, you know, the Garmin's going to tell you exactly how far you're running. A marathon is 26.2 miles. However, you will not be running 26.2 miles for the marathon because yeah. you will not be able to run the tangents. You'll probably finish somewhere between 26.35 and 26.4. Right. So think about, and that's particularly true if you're running a big one like New York. Or, yes, or in particular one with a lot of turns like New York. Um, so you'll you'll just want to be aware of that and know okay do I want to track my mile splits do I want to you know you know how do I want to treat the the pace that my watch is giving back to me mm-hmm. um, and then also know you know how that's going to affect you know your surges things like that yeah and know by the way every one of the courses at a major marathon has been married has, has been married has been measured uh, very very precisely 
And so if you're running along at the New York City Marathon and, and your automatic, your auto lap beeps to tell you that you're the 20-mile mark and the 20-mile mark is still 200 yards down the road, which will happen if you're in New York City and you have it on auto lap, um, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, the course must be marked wrong. I've run 20 miles. No, the course is marked right. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, you might have run more than 20 miles here. And, and, and also don't make the, the completely inane assumption that, that, oh, well, whatever my watch says for 26.2, that's my marathon time. No, it's not. Your marathon right. time is what the New York City Marathon people tell you in their official <laughs> results. Um, you know, I, I know a guy that did Disney recently, and he's like, he's like, well, I actually ran 27 miles. And so I'm like, no, you didn't. Yeah. You ran twenty six point. You you ran the Disney Marathon. It was right. twenty six point two miles. The time they gave you at the, the finish, that's your marathon, marathon time. time. Right. Yeah. And and so yeah, yeah. Whatever your run keeper tells you is is, is not okay. But anyway, um, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. And on that same note, I cannot verify this, but I've been told that you can actually reset your Garmin so it doesn't auto lap at the mile, but you can actually reset to auto lap at like one point. Oh, two miles to try to make up for that extra time. Yeah, okay. So, well, I mean, it makes, yeah, you can, you can set it to auto lap at whatever distance you want. So, so that way it would finish at like 26.4 for mm-hmm. the finish line. If mm-hmm. that floats your boat, go for it. Yeah. I have to say, if I tried that, I'd end up auto lapping to, <laughs> I don't know, I'd set off a nuclear warhead somewhere. Um, but all that is to say is just know that some, something that will happen on race day, the, the mile markers will probably not align exactly with your garment. And that's, you know, not something you want to be surprised by on race day. And, and, and you don't want to let that knock you out of your flow. Right. Um, the, the, if that's something that's going to be distracting to you, you need to think about it. And so, so whenever I think about my, my Garmin, um, my watch on race day, I always think about, okay, what do I want displayed while I'm running? Mm-hmm. What do I want to look down and see? I'll tell you one thing I do not want to see is my heart rate. I do not want to see my heart rate because right. it, because it and, and it would freak me out. Now it's taking heart rate, and I'll be able to review that afterwards. I still wear my heart rate monitor because I want to have that data, um, but I don't want to look down and see my heart rate because because that would freak me out. Um, and in fact, like I had a good race at New York City. It's a good thing I didn't because I looked back at that day later. And I was like, wow, my heart was like nine beats higher than I thought it was going to be <laughs> the entire race. If I would have looked down at my watch during the race, even though I knew I could feel that I was running the right pace. Um, I, I probably would have forced myself to slow down. I wouldn't have had as fast a race as I did. Um, and so I know that that's not something I want to see. Um, I had an interaction on Facebook with somebody a few years ago. She was talking about like, well, don't all pros put, put the average pace that they're running? Don't they, don't they, not average pace, current pace on their Garmin, on their watches? I'm like, no, no current, no pros put current pace on their watch. Um, pros tend to, t- tend to run by feel and they tend to react to the, the contours of the race. Um, they, they, they don't tend to look at current pace, but triathletes in particular tend to, to really like to look at current pace on their Garmin, um, which is both inaccurate and, and can lead you down a bad path. Um, yeah. So, so think about what, what it is you want displayed on your Garmin as well. And that kind of leads us right into our last bucket of, of things to consider when planning for your race, and that's a race strategy. So part of the reason why current pace can be a bit of a misnomer is because, as you all are aware, every course is different. Um, you're not running around a track, thankfully. And so when planning for your race, you need to look at the and, course. Unless you are. Yeah. Um, God you, bless let, your soul. Let, unless you're trying to do that, 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 in, that Annapolis indoor marathon uh, that's on a 200-meter track. But anyway, keep going. And Yeah, and so... What was it? Oh yeah, t- course profile. Um, <laughs> the kind of the, the the notion of doing an indoor marathon on a two hundred meter track just completely threw you off your uh, your your mindset. Sorry you just saw my eyes just glaze off and exactly. c- consider the horror that it is. Yeah, no um. So, anyways, course profile. Uh, you'll want to look at the course profile and know what the course looks like in general. Obviously, you can't memorize. All right, mile one is a seven foot increase, and then a fourteen you know foot um, drop in elevation the next mile. But you want to kind of break it up into sections, you know, probably three to five or maybe three to six sections. So, you know, OK, the first 10K is going to be uphill. Mm-hmm. Then there's a gradual downhill. And that can kind of help give you an idea. So then when you see your splits at the mile markers or your CU splits or your current pace or your your average pace on your GPS, you can have an idea of whether or not you're on track or not. Mm-hmm. Um you know, one mistake people make is they may run a fast time at Chicago and they think, all right, I'm going to run that same time at Boston. Mm-hmm. And they are two very different courses. Yeah. And so you need to know how, what A, what the course looks like, and then how the course terrain 
um, will influence your race strategy. For example, Boston is downhill, then it's uphill, mm-hmm. right? In a very general sense. Okay. So a lot, and it's a a net loss, or it's a it's a net um, drop in elevation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think, oh, all right, net downhill. I, I'd take it a step farther. It's downhill, then uphill, then downhill. Yes, exactly. Okay. And we'll talk about that more on our Boston specific podcast yeah. to come. Um, so a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that means. It's a PR course, yeah. but anybody who's run it can tell you it is decidedly not because of the way, because of when the hills are coming at you. Right. Um, the long downhill really kind of pounds the the muscles out of your quad or the powers out of your quads, and then when you try to power up the hills, there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. So you need to know those kind of things when you're heading into the marathon. Mm-hmm. So the a you don't freak out if you're you think you're slower than your what your final average pace is going to look like. And also so you don't blow through the downhill portions mm-hmm. without um, considering how much you need in reserves for the uphill parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similarly, you need to consider the weather in that regard. Exactly. Uh, for, mm-hmm. for, for races, um, you know, this is true for marathons, but it's particularly true for Ironmans. And Ironmans, you're not going to be starting your, your you're not going to be starting the marathon until 2 o'clock in the afternoon, at the earliest. You know, and so, so, you know, it's going to be getting into the heat of the day by the time that you actually get out and run your marathon. And so, so, if... You know, in 2017, you ran the Chicago Marathon, to use the one that you just talked about, and you ran mm-hmm. a particular time. Um, and, and you're like, oh, well, the rule of thumb is that you add 20 minutes to your marathon time, and that's your Ironman time. And so I'm going to go out and do Kona um, at 20 minutes slower than I did Chicago. Probably not, Jack, um, because Kona, you're going to be starting that marathon in the heat at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe if you ran it, you know, first thing in the morning, you could approximate that, but... but that's not how Ironmans work. You start the run in the in the heat of the day, mm-hmm. um, and and that's going to make a profound difference on how much you can do. We've we've talked on this podcast before. I've talked on the podcast before about some some rules of thumb you can use to actually calculate how much heels and heat are going to slow you down. Um, but without rehashing all those sorts of things, let's just say they slow you down a lot. They they have a pretty profound impact on how much they slow you down. Um, and going uphill slows you down more than going downhill speeds you up. Right. Right. <laughs> and so so if you look at a course that that's that's zero um, you know, net gain, um, that's not necessarily the best way to go about looking at it. You have to look at what the what the individual variances are. Um, likewise, um, weather, the ideal weather, um, the ideal weather for a marathon is around forty to forty five degrees. Um, and anything above that you're starting to get less and less ideal. And so you might be like, oh, it's only 65 degrees. It's perfect weather. Well, it's perfect weather if you're a spectator. Right. Um, but but it's a little bit hot if you're if you're actually looking to, to have your best performance as an athlete. And that's something you need to take into account when, you, when you're when you coming up with your strategy as well. Um, and then, of course, you need to think about how you're going to break the race up mentally in terms mm-hmm. of miles and that sort of thing. I know you have something to say about that. Yeah, I, w- I would just say in general, I, I tend to break it up into... A marathon. Marathon is, yes, thank you, um, into a couple different sections based on what the course profile looks like and based on my own experience in terms of after every marathon I've done, I've said, all right, the race started at mile 11. That's when I was no longer, you know, waving to the crowd and kissing babies. <laughs> okay, then, you know, out time really started at mile 17. Mm-hmm. And then I was just absolutely, you know, flopping like a fish mile 22 on. <laughs> you know, and you almost want to break that up you know, and kind of have a general idea for when the pain is going to set in. And also, you have to expect the pain to happen. Mm-hmm. Words I have never heard spoken by a marathoner is, that was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> um, right now. Yeah, right now. <laughs> so, yeah, you need to go in with the expectations for what the pain is going to feel like, what the race is going to feel like, and then have kind of an idea of how you want to attack that, that what mindset you want to take to the pain, to the struggle of the race. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that makes me think of several things. I mean, first of all, it makes me think of, of um, a lot of people have heard of, of approaching a marathon as a 20-mile run in a 10K race. Mm-hmm. And so you, you just kind of run a brisk 20 miles and you race the last 10 miles. And you, and you think of that last, or that last 10K, you think of that last 6.2 miles as a 10K race. And you think about, okay, how do you feel at the end of, of mile one of a 10K race? That's about how you should feel at mile 21. How do you feel at, mile, at the end of mile three of a 10K race? That's about how you should feel at mile 23. Um, if, in fact, presuming, of course, that you run 10Ks the way 10Ks should be run. Right. <laughs> Which are, you know, 10Ks are wicked hard, man. I mean, you're running, you're running super duper hard for, for 
you know, 30 to 50 minutes. I mean, I mean, 10 Ks are very difficult, but anyway, 30 to 60 minutes. Um, um, uh, but that, that actual way of thinking of it comes from Dr. Dave Martin, who we talked right. about last week. Um, that, that was the way that he always said that you should think about it. Um, yeah, also it, it reminds me, you're saying like thinking about, you know, flopping around like a fish, um, uh, like a penguin who left the oven on. Um, hey, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the quotation I said last week from, uh, from Roger Bannister, don't think about the wretchedness of racing poorly. Think about the beauty of competing well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whenever I think about whenever I, and we're kind of getting away from this strategy of breaking it up, but I, whenever I visualize myself in the race, I'm always visualizing myself running strong. I'm always visualizing myself running fast impressing the people around me, passing folks, you know, and that's what you should be thinking about. Um, you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, bleeding and drooling and all of those sorts of things <laughs> that are probably going to be going on at the very end, you know, with your squishy shoes and all of that stuff. Um, you should be thinking about, about the glory of, of catching those last few folks there over the course of the the, the final miles. Um, and I think that's great. Um, competing well. Think about the beauty of competing well. Um, you know, in a more, a less poetic way, um, um, uh, Chris McCormick, who's a two-time Kona champion, mm-hmm. um, is famous for saying you need to embrace the suck. Yes. Um, you need to know that at some point over the course of the next day, some things are going to hurt and it's going to kind of suck. And you just have to be like, all right, here we go. Right. We're, 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 we're hopping on this roller coaster. Um, and you have to kind of embrace that suck. You have to kind of like it. Um, and I, and I think he's right about that. Um, you, you, you have to recognize that, that that's sort of part of what's going to happen and that's okay. And that's good. Um, you should welcome that, um, and, and be ready for it visually, um, thinking, um, back to breaking up the course though. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think a lot of people, particularly in long course triathlon tend to want to break it up by, Oh, swim, bike, run. Of course, if you're doing an Ironman or even a half Ironman, Breaking up into the run, you're not breaking it up enough, <laughs> right? Um, and and un, and and similar to to kind of what you talked about kissing babies with the, with the marathon and stuff like that. The first half of your of your Ironman run uh, should be like waving to the crowd. The first half of your your marathon run should be you know enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in New York City, I high fived every kid I saw in the first half just to try and keep myself calm. Right. You know? um, my Strava profile pictures of me high fiving a New York City policeman. Um, but, um, the, the, it's the same way, uh, Ironman Wisconsin. I remember I was, I was running through middle of downtown Madison looking at, and I was thinking to myself, what a lovely little part of town this is. So oh, this is, this is far. And I didn't realize until later I was only about a half mile from where the start was. You know, I wasn't in a different part of town. Um, but, uh, but my, my wife took a picture of me kind of smiling and I was like, oh, this is great. Hey, so glad to see all of y'all. Yeah. I wasn't doing that in the second loop. Exactly. I wasn't doing that by mile 18. But, but yeah, that first half of the run, it should, you should not be really pressing hard. You should be enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, a, in an Ironman, it's around mile 18 and a half Ironman, it's around mile eight or nine, um, that you really need to kind of start paying attention and, and turning the screws a little bit. Right. Um, I heard one, one guy, um, uh, who was... Uh, a top end, um, a top end uh, amateur who did about nine hours for a marathon or for a, for an Ironman, um, and he said you essentially warm up for the first eight hours for the last last hour, <laughs> um, and even if you're not going at that speed, that's about right. Right. Um, because you, your intensity is such, and this is true in a marathon as well. Your intensity is such that the only reason why it's hard is because of the duration. Right. <laughs> you know? And and if the only reason why something is hard is because of the duration, then it's not going to get really, 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 really hard until that last chunk, that last hour, right? And so so you should be in a pretty relaxed place. You know, everything should be kind of a warm-up for that last hour. And that mm-hmm. last hour is when you're going to really embrace the suck, mm-hmm. you know, when you're going to enjoy the beauty of competing well. Yeah, and to kind of to your point of embracing the suck, I, I know in most most of the big races I've gone into, I've actually gone in with key themes, mm-hmm. right? And it's some, it's a quick little embrace the suck. A lot yeah. of times there's humor involved. Yeah. And <coughs> mantras. Right, like just little mantras that I can kind of repeat to myself mm-hmm. when I lose the ability to add, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. and can't really think things through or yeah. think too logically. And I can kind of go to that well mm-hmm. and know, okay, mm-hmm. now's the time to embrace the suck. Yeah. 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 When it comes to mantras, by the way, there's there's two sort of general guidelines on mantras. Mm-hmm. One is they should be simple. Yes. Um, they need to be something you can quickly say. I can do this all day. I got this. You know, something like that. 
Um, something really simple. My, my mantra for, for New York City was um, kings from queens from queens come kings. That was too complex. <laughs> but, but, but the idea was there. It was, it's a lyric from a Run DMC song. Right. And, and I figured, you know, the Queensboro Bridge, which runs out of Queens into Manhattan, is really where people say the race starts, like the 16-mile mark. And I was like, oh, yeah, from Queens come Kings. Here we go. I was the king in the scenario. Right. Um, and, uh, um, but, but when I was running the Queensboro Bridge and it's all quiet, I was like, here we go, here we go. And I couldn't, quite, I couldn't get the lyric right in my head. Yeah, and but it was okay because I had the I had the the idea of it, I had the spirit of it, I had the notion of it, and so I didn't actually need the specific words. Um, but yeah, it needs to be something. Um, it needs to be something something easy. Um, later on in that race, a mantra just suddenly came to me. Um, in, in the New York City Marathon, you run through Central Park, then you exit out the south end of the park, then you run along the south at southern edge of the park, and then you re-enter the park to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I remember in those last three or four miles, I was going, get out of the park, get out of the park, get out of the park. That's an easy, quick mantra. Yes. And and it was focusing me on getting to that stage of the race. Get out of the park, get out of the park. And it just kind of came to me, and so so, so I went with it. Um, the other guideline with, with mantras is that there should be no negativity in them at all. Yep. And so, so that means, like, literally, like, it, it should be, rather than saying, don't suck, it should, it should be, be awesome. Right. right, And that's essentially the same thing, but one of them takes a negative cast on it and one of them takes a positive cast on it. Like, no or not shouldn't be anywhere in your mantra. Um, it should be all entirely positive stuff you're using to lift yourself up. Um, if you're not, then, then, then um, yeah, you're going to get dragged into a, to a dark place. Um, yeah, uh, along those same lines, uh, George, don't think of pink elephants. <laughs> right? What are you thinking of right now? Pink elephants? Exactly. You know, <laughs> the mind doesn't really process the uh, don't, okay, the can't, the not. I like what you did there. You know. Yeah. Um, and, and that sounds silly. Like, the, the best example I ever heard was a, a track coach talked about how he had a runner who was unbelievable. And all they needed her to do was finish the race. It was a sprinter. And the, she was in the finals of the sprint. Mm-hmm. And all she needed to do was finish the race. They would get at least one point, mm-hmm. And they would win the meet. Mm-hmm. So he said, all right. Whatever you do, don't false start. Oh, no. What do you think happened? She false started. She false started. <laughs> yeah. Only time she's ever false started in her life. Yeah. And the point is, you know, keep it positive. You're going to need plenty of it during a long race. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the brain tends to kind of wash over the don'ts, the can't, the negative, um, you know, aspect there. So, you know, to your point, the more positive mantra, the better. Right on. Right mm-hmm. on. All right. So... Start logistics, nutrition plan, gear, strategy, including course and weather stuff. Is that about guys? That's that's about it. And to kind of wrap it up, what we're really saying is have a checklist. Mm-hmm. Have a plan for what you want uh, for the day before the big race, for the morning of the big race. If you cover what you want to do that day, um, you know, during the race, etc. Because there are a lot of things that go into a big race and a big kind of peak effort. Um, and there are a lot of things that you can't control, like weather, like the course profile. But the checklist can, can really kind of help you address those, I- address those items that you can control. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to make a rookie mistake, which you can do even if you've run 20 marathons. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to avoid those rookie mistakes, write it down. Mm-hmm. And then kind of hone that plan, hone that checklist from mm-hmm. race to race so you kind of can learn your lessons and capture lessons learned. Discuss it. Discuss it with your training partners. Discuss it with your with your significant other. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you have a race coming up this summer, this fall, what can you do now? Start reading people's race reports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you read race reports, and, and I have a race, my, my target race is in the fall. Um, I, I started reading race reports. It's eight months away, more than eight months away. Mm-hmm. I've started reading race reports about eight months away. Um, and and that's beginning that process of visualizing, beginning that process of planning, knowing what people do, knowing what's going to, the start is going to be like and how long that's going to take, mm-hmm. knowing where the hills are and where the turns are and what the fast parts of the course are and what the boring parts of the course are. Right. Um, you know, plotting out what my nutrition is going to be and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and of course, that'll give me more to, to continue to reflect on during the, the long training sessions I'm going to do this summer and this fall. Um, so, so yeah, go ahead and start reading race reports now. Mm-hmm. Final words? That's it. Make a plan. Make a plan. Right on. Make a plan. Enact the plan. Uh, thanks again for joining us, everybody.
And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. You can go to our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, or go to facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast to connect with us on Facebook. Now reach out to ITL Coaching and Performance, uh, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, itlcoaching.com online, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, don't forget about my wife, the travel planner, who also helps us out a lot in the planning and, and execution of the show. She's on Facebook, facebook.com slash kctravelplannermev. You can drop her a line, kctravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. And finally, kctravelplanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.